This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And uh, today I have the great pleasure of speaking with uh, Michael Fromovitz, who is a professor in the Department of Gynecological Oncology and Reproductive Medicine at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And uh, today we're speaking about a, a very important study that was recently published in Lancet Oncology. Um, the quality of life in patients with cervical cancer after open versus minimally invasive radical hysterectomy, the LAC trial, a secondary outcome of a multicenter randomized open label phase three non-inferiority trial. So welcome, Michael. Thanks. Thank you, Pedro. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, obviously, I want to congratulate you on a really outstanding uh, manuscript and um, certainly very anticipated information as it pertains to quality of life in the, in the LAC trial, comparing open versus minimally invasive radical hysterectomy. So what I wanted to do is uh, start by asking you regarding the time frame perspective of where we were with regards to minimally invasive surgery in gynecological cancers when the study was designed uh, back in uh, 2008, um, and particularly uh, focusing on uh, the data that we had on uh, endometrial cancer. So remember in 2008, uh, we were really beginning to move into adopting minimally invasive surgery into gynecologic oncology. Um, those of us like your, you and me who were big believers in minimally invasive were trying to convince uh, many of our colleagues that the oncologic outcomes were equivalent. Uh, and we were in the middle of, of the LAP2 and the LACE studies, which were the two uh, big randomized studies that eventually would show that minimally invasive approaches for endometrial cancer were equivalent to open. And, you know, around this time, almost everyone believed that that was going to be the outcome. Uh, everyone kind of was beginning to really accept that we could do these surgeries minimally invasively. Um, and, you know, essentially when we sat down to the study, we wanted to have kind of the official official study to show that it was applicable for radical hysterectomies also. Um, and I think all of us who designed the study were doing it to prove uh, that, that we would be able to do these minimally invasively and that uh, we kind of had a foregone conclusion that the two arms, the open and the minimally invasive arm, were going to be equivalent even for, for radical hysterectomy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that... Uh I recall some of the initial discussions were so much on an anticipated difference in, in quality of life, not so much on an anticipated difference in, uh, in recurrence rate and, and uh, survival. So that brings us then to the point, uh, I think most of our listeners are familiar with the results of the LAC trial, but if you could just like briefly discuss the, the results associated with that study. So the LAC trial, as you mentioned, most of our listeners, I think, will be familiar, was an international randomized trial comparing open versus minimally invasive radical hysterectomy for patients with early-stage cervix cancers. The minimally invasive arm could be either laparoscopic or robotic, although 85% of the cases in the minimally invasive arm were done laparoscopically. And patients had to have either a, uh, a 1A1 with LVSI or a using the old FIGO 2008 system, 1A2 or 1B1. So basically tumors limited to the cervix less than four centimeters in size. And the study was, the primary endpoint was disease-free survival at 4.5 years. And the study, again, surprisingly to us at least, showed that the minimally invasive arm uh, had inferior outcomes when compared to open. 
The open arm had a disease-free survival of 97% versus 86% with a hazard ratio for recurrence of 3.74, again, favoring open surgery. And Michael, when, uh, when uh, we integrated quality of life, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, had anyone done this before, looking specifically at any component of quality of life in radical hysterectomies, uh, comparing open versus minimally invasive um, no one had looked at it in a, in a prospective randomized manner. There had been other studies out there uh, that had looked at quality of life, either for open or minimally invasive, at certain time points after surgery, kind of um, kind of cohort studies, uh, so to speak. But there had never been a study that I know of, at least, that had a randomized, uh, which was a randomized control study with quality of life endpoints for, for this patient population. Right. So you, you uh, integrated quite a number of tools, and, uh, and certainly uh, now looking back on it, I'm, I'm very glad that, uh, that you did. Um, can you tell our listeners uh, about the tools of quality of life measurements that uh, were placed in, in the LAC trial? Um, how many in total uh, were used? Different uh, instruments. Um, and from those four instruments, you had, there were six composite scores because uh, two of the instruments had one composite score and two of the instruments had two composite scores. So six total composite scores from four instruments. And um, tell us a little bit about each of these tools for those who may not be as familiar with the, um, with the quality of life uh, assessment tools. So, um, again, as I mentioned, we use four, four tools or instruments or surveys. We kind of use those terms uh, interchangeably. The first was the uh, FACT-CX, um, and this was, a, this was kind of our, 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 what we considered our primary, even though this was a secondary outcome for this LAC study, the FACT-CX was our primary outcome instrument for the quality of life portion. And the reason we picked one is because if you look in the literature, the fact the FACT kind of um, family of, of, of instruments are used very, very frequently, uh, and we wanted to have, um, are probably used the most frequently, so we wanted to be at least comparable with, with those types of studies. So the FACT-CX has 42 questions on the survey. It takes the FACT study, F-A-C-T, which is the Functional Assessment of Cancer Treatment or Cancer Therapy, uh, and, it, and it adds additional questions to that general FACT study that are cervix specific. Um, and these questions assess both physical and emotional outcomes, as well as sexual functioning. The second instrument, we, and, that, and that instrument gives you one composite score at the end. Um, the second instrument we used was the uh, MD Anderson Symptom Index, which is sometimes referred to as the MEDASI. This is a 19-question survey, and it looks at that it asks patients about certain symptoms, cancer-related symptoms or surgical-related symptoms that they had uh, within the last 24 hours of being asked and how they interfered with their general well-being. Uh, and so you get two scores from this. One is a symptom score and one is an interference score. We then use the SF12, which is a 12-item survey looking at general health-related quality of life. Um, and again, you get two scores from this, a physical component score and a mental component score. And then finally, we use the EQ5D, which is a five-question uh, survey that uh, looks at health status and quality of life. 
Um, and this, this last, the EQ5D was really developed so that when you're doing cost analyses and you want to look at life years gained with a certain intervention, uh, you can use these data. And, um, and how often were patients evaluated for quality of life in the LAC trial? So patients were evaluated uh, preoperatively, so they had a baseline scan before surgery. Then they, got then they had uh, surveys administered at one week after surgery, six weeks after surgery, and then three months and six months. In addition, because we thought the fact, we considered kind of the FACS-CX our primary instrument, that instrument alone was then uh, administered every 12 months afterwards, up to 54 months. So quite a yeah, quite an extensive uh, uh, follow-up and, uh, and and certainly a lot of data that was gathered, which then brings me to my next uh, questions. That, you know, pertaining to the intent to treat analysis, getting into the trial requirements for quality of life assessment. Um, how many surveys did a patient have to complete? And how many times did they have to complete a survey in order to qualify for the analyses? So to be, to be included in the intent to treat, the patients had to complete um, at least one survey. Everyone had to complete a, a, a preoperative baseline survey. And then everyone who completed at least one postoperative survey was included. Uh, and that was about 80, almost 80% of the patients in the LAC trial. Right. And, and you did mention also that there was a, a post hoc subgroup analysis of the FACT uh, cervix total score. Can you tell us a little bit about that as well? Yeah. I, um, you know, we'll talk about the results from the, from the quality of, from the, the main quality of life uh, endpoints in a moment. But we wanted to look at what else other than just minimally invasive versus open might affect quality of life outcomes. And so we looked at, we looked at things that had been shown in other studies to maybe affect quality of life, uh, like age, uh, ECOG performance score, uh, BMI. Uh, we also, I would, I personally had a little bit of a concern that there might be some cultural differences mm -hmm. uh, between patients uh, from from different countries because this was 33 centers from around the world, mm -hmm. um, and so we also wanted to look at, at least. We want to look at, at some sort of re if there could be some sort of regional differences um, because there were so many countries and we didn't and, and to keep the study to keep the uh, analysis uh, well powered uh, we ended up dividing patients into either patients from what the um, um, UN considers developed or developing countries so we, we dichotomized patients that way and then uh, we'd also seen another study out there when we were doing our, our research uh, that looked at complications and how complications might affect quality of life. Mm -hmm. And so our, we did a post hoc analysis looking at patients who had a um, CTCAE grade two or worse complication versus those who didn't. Okay. So those were our post hoc analysis. All right. So now, obviously, the, the main results, the main question, uh, did you find any difference in quality of life between open versus minimally invasive radical hysterectomy? So, you know, just as we were very surprised uh, when we looked at the primary endpoint that there was a difference in disease-free survival favoring the open surgery, uh, I think, I mean, at least personally, and I won't speak for you, but personally, I was equally surprised that there was no difference, no real difference in quality of life between the open and the minimally invasive arms. And so when you look at the six composite scores from the four instruments, um, there was a both both 
patient populations, open and minimally invasive, had a decrease in their physical component score on the SF12 at six weeks. <clears throat> and the, the difference was greater for the, minim, for the open group than the minimally invasive group. And that's, that difference was statistically different. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, there was no difference on any of the component scores at any of the time points going forward. So the fact CX had no difference in at six weeks, three months or thereafter, the SF12 mental component score, no difference, the EQ5D and the Medassi two component scores. There was no difference at any of the time points, even as early as six weeks. And for the SF12 physical component score, where there was a slight difference in uh, a slight decrease in, in outcome, that had resolved by three months. Okay. And, and one of the questions that Michael often comes up is whether there were differences in quality of life uh, between those patients that had complications and those patients that did <coughs> not have complications. And also I was wondering if you can just uh, speak a little bit about the fact that uh, in those patients that did have a complication, was there a difference between MIS and open? So it turns out that it isn't, it isn't how you do the surgery, whether it's open or minimally invasive. It's whether or not you have a complication that truly affects quality of life for, for patients after radical hysterectomy. The, the presence or absence of complication, and again, we define complication as CTCAE grade two or worse. So the presence or absence of complication was the only differentiator in quality of life uh, in this study. And patients who had a grade two or worse complication in, at any time in the six weeks following surgery had worse quality of life compared to those who didn't on every instrument and every composite score at the six-week point. Mm -hmm. And at three months, this persisted on four out of the six composite scores. So it was really complications that drove, drove the quality of life, not the surgical approach. Right. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting now, obviously. I mean, it, it kind of does make sense when you, when you think about it. You did mention one of, the, um, one of the other things you were interested in, obviously an international study. Um, so one of the questions I wanted to ask you was whether there were differences in outcomes comparing different regions of the world. Uh, did you do an analysis uh, pertaining to that? Yeah, so as, as I mentioned, one of our post-hoc uh, um, subgroup analyses looked at developed versus developing worlds, and we didn't find a difference there. Um, again, it's a pretty broad, um, a broad categorization. You know, obviously, you know, a, a, a developing nation in, in South America may be different than a developing nation in, um, in Asia uh, or a developed nation in Asia and, and Europe. There may be a lot of cultural differences, but, but in order to kind of do the analysis, we had to, to pick some way to, to dichotomize. And so that's how we did. And we didn't see a difference between those regions. Right. So I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here because obviously some might say, you know, come on, wait a minute. It's not possible. How can MIS have the same quality of life as open surgery? Has this been looked at in other cancers, particularly in, in a prospective fashion outside of gynecologic oncology? Have they evaluated quality of life open versus MIS? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, right? Intuitively, we would all think that the, that the, the MIS group is going to have a, a much better uh, improvement in, in quality or much better uh, quality of life uh, outcome than, than open. And that's what we've kind of all just assumed. And of course, that's what we've been 
kind of taught, so to speak. Um, so, you know, obviously these have been done both within GYN and outside GYN. And I know you you asked about outside GYN, but I just want to I just want to make a um, a specific point about the two studies that are kind of most often pointed to within GYN, the LAP two and the LACE study. Um, and you know, if you look at the LAP two study, um, they use the fact they use the fact uh, G um, uh, survey, and at six weeks there was a a difference uh, statistically, but there was no difference clinically. Meaning, the the investigators in the LAP two study predefined before the surgery what they would consider a clinically relevant change in quality of life in the open versus the minimally invasive group. And although the study did meet, although that endpoint did meet statistical difference, it did not meet what the what the investigators considered a clinical meaningful endpoint. So there really was no difference in the LAP two study. Mm-hmm. Uh, the LACE study, the LACE study, you know, had a, a statistical uh, difference at six weeks and six months, also on the fact sheet, uh, and they didn't really predefine what they would consider clinically different. So, you know, even in our own GYN literature, there's there's a good prospective study, which really shows that there wasn't a meaningful difference. If you look outside of GYN, most of the prospective studies have been done in colorectal, and similar to the LAP2 and, and what we're seeing in this study is that this, the, there's, there's no consistent improvement in MIS over, over open for quality of life. So, you know, one of the studies uh, by, by, uh, by a, uh, a group uh, led by Weeks showed that at a very early time point, Two weeks after surgery, there was a slight difference on one of their scales on what they call a global score, but there was no difference on multiple other assessments. Um, and by two months, these had all resolved where all the quality of life was equal between the two groups. Other colorectal studies have shown that there is a difference in quality of life favoring minimally invasive for up to a year. So, you know, similar to the GYN literature, there's a little bit of difference, but but I think, you know, everyone just assumes that every study is going to show that minimally invasive is, is better than open uh, when it comes to quality of life. And I would argue that it's probably not the approach and it's probably more likely uh, whether or not you're having complications. Yeah. And, you know, obviously then the, the, the subsequent question is, all right, if, if there are no differences, why not? How, how do you explain that? Yeah. So, you know, so... You know, one, like I mentioned, would be complications. Uh, the other is, you know, maybe the fact that over the course of this study and certainly throughout all of, of surgery now, uh, there's a lot of focus on enhanced recovery. Uh, and, you know, for those who are, uh, are, are believers and adopters of enhanced recovery, you know, you can see that, uh, you know, enhanced recovery programs seem to uh, really help patients recover from surgery more quickly. So it could be that kind of the wide-scale adoption of enhanced recovery programs are compensating for the open approach. Mm-hmm. And, Michael, you know, obviously there, there are some who will say, well, uh, what, what are the limitations of the study and, and start focusing on potential limitations? Uh, what do you see as the limitations of, of the study, and, and how would you address those? Well, I, I think that probably the main limitation of the study is that the study was this was a secondary endpoint, so the study was powered for the primary endpoint of disease-free survival. Um, so, you know, one one question would be, did we have uh, enough patients? Uh, was our was our sample size large enough to show a difference? Um, you know, we did have a, a, a large sample size of, of at least for for this part of the study, uh, you know, over 600 patients. Mm-hmm. 
um, which will be one of the larger quality of life studies. So I, I think it's hard to argue that sample size wasn't adequate, but you know certainly it wasn't powered for that. Um, you know, patients weren't obviously blinded, so they knew which surgery they had. Patients also were told well ahead of time, you know, which which arm they were going to be in. So they may have had it adequate time to kind of mentally prepare themselves uh, uh, for, for what they were going to, what, what surgery was going to be done. Um, certainly these studies were done at mostly academic centers for around the world. So the applicability to, to um, other types of centers may be, may be different. Um, and then certainly there may be, you know, because it's such a, a, a very group, there may be cultural differences and things like that that may, may cause limitations on the study. Right. So one of the uh, one of the requests, uh, usually by the Lancet Oncology Journal, is for the author to state as to what is the added value of this study, and what are the implications in our practice uh, of these findings. Um, how did you respond to those? Yeah, so that's funny because you know when we wrote the original paper for Lancet. Um, Specifically in the abstract, you know, we tried to keep it fairly uh, just the facts. Um, you know, the, the original interpretation for the abstract was probably something to the effect of, you know, quality of life. There's not appeared to be a quality of life difference between um, open and minimally invasive surgery. Something just very much like, you know, here's what we're presenting. And the Lancet actually, the editors from Lancet actually asked us to be, um, to essentially make more of a recommendation as opposed to just stating the facts. And so, you know, I'll just read you from the paper, but the, the final line of the abstract says, since recurrent rates are higher and disease-free survival is lower for minimally invasive radical hysterectomy than for open surgery, and postoperative quality of life is similar between the treatment groups, gynecologic oncologists should recommend open radical surgery for patients with early-stage cervical cancer. So, we were, we were very happy to be able to, to put a statement like that into our abstract. Uh, you know, like I said, most, most uh, journals don't want you to kind of editorialize your, um, uh, your, your abstract conclusion. Uh, but, you know, as many of you know, uh, the, the authors of the, of the LAC study feel, feel very uh, strongly that, um, you know, this, this study shows, as well as now more and more other emerging studies, both uh, retrospective and um, and uh, um, with large databases, you know, shows that there may be we may be doing our patients a disservice by doing minimally invasive surgery for cervix cancer. Absolutely. So, um, Michael, now obviously uh, we um, had a great opportunity to discuss this study. Um, wanted to ask you, what are your Closing summaries, what are some of the highlights uh, that you've learned from conducting this study? Um, you know, I, I think that the main, the, the main educational, the main thing I learned from this study is that we very, very frequently make assumptions about, you know, what is what we think is best for patients um, based on you know, our own experiences based on retrospective studies. Um, but this study, both in its primary outcome of disease-free survival, as well now in its quality of life outcome, as well as, you know, Andreas Obermeyer published the complications uh, study in the Gray Journal, which also showed pretty similar uh, outcomes between the two groups. Um, until you do the studies, you don't know for sure what the outcome is going to be. 
Um, and even though all of us, and again, we're, we are minimally invasive enthusiasts, you know, we were as sad about the findings of this study as anyone else. Um, you know, but until you do the studies, you can't assume that that outcomes are going to be equivalent between between different types of approaches or different types of uh, surgeries. Absolutely. Michael, thank you so, so much. Uh, I really, you know, certainly I, I've read so many versions of, uh, of this manuscript before its final form. <laughs> um, but I really, again, truly continue to enjoy uh, a really well-written paper, um, and you have done a great job, and, and thank you for your contribution to gynecologic oncology with this uh, manuscript. Thanks for having me, Richard.